everyone. Welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a graduate student in education, and with me is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. Death is something everyone will experience, and the thought of death can be the greatest fear for some people and the most intriguing mystery for others. Today we'll look at all the different ways cultures around the world have conceptualized the deities of death in the first part of the show, while examining philosophical paradigms of the afterlife in the latter part. Okay, so, um, you know, last week we had an interesting conversation on aging, and, um, you know, we talked about kind of inserting um, episodes here and there about different, um, in our little series of gods and, and, you know, mythological deities and things. So I thought, okay, well, aging kind of naturally leads into death, and death has a a pretty wide range of deities, um, you know, in in ancient and modern um, culture. And uh, then after that, we can kind of talk about the afterlife some, because as much as that is a cool concept to me, I didn't, and we probably could have, but I wasn't sure if we could fill up a whole show with it. So um, (laughs) one thing I do think we might be able to fill up a whole show with that we might want to do after this one would be um, the soul or like the concept of, Oh my yes, (laughs) Yeah. So we'll see, we'll see see where we go, how far we get, but uh, so yeah, let's start. We'll start with the gods of death, and we're going to stick with um, you know the cultures that we've done with the other with the other shows. Mm-hmm. So let's look at um, the Greek god of death first, uh, Thanatos. Okay, and and this is really interesting to start with because I'm sure you're aware that one of it's probably the most recognizable in some ways to uh, current pop culture. Mm. Um, um, Thanatos sounds very close to a, something you may have heard in movies. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> and and so Thanos, the Marvel character that Jim Starlin uh, created in the seventies, um, was a direct derivation of Thanatos. <clears throat> um, a lot of characteristics therein, and so I th- that's a really good familiar place to begin with because it's familiar, but then it sort of messes around with it. Um, so we have these these gods of death. The Greek um, structure is filled with all kinds of. Uh, this is an organizational chart. Uh, who punishes and which beings punish and how much they punish and where they go and and who's in charge of conveying this and that and and, and it's it's just fascinatingly complicated. We could have done a whole thing on just that one. We won't. Uh, <laughs> um, so Thanatos um, is the son of Nyx, uh, which is night, and the brother of Hypnos, uh, which uh, who is sleep, and Thanatos is essentially. Not mentioned, it was mentioned by Euripides in his plays. It's not mentioned uh, nearly as much as some of the others, but is really a conveyor. Mm. Um, so he, uh, Euripides actually painted him uh, visually as this uh, slender, black cloaked creature with a sword. But that's not how the mythological system really had it earlier. He was a winged spirit who uh, comes with the wings and uh, sort of um, smothers you or just picks you up and says it's your time and goes. Conveys you to uh, the edge of Hades and then then you do the rest of the trip. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like that you um, you mentioned Thanos at the beginning because if, if you've seen the movies, 
I feel like that uh, he does do a pretty good job of kind of conveying the character because if you just read the description, it might be kind of hard to imagine because, you know, like you get some things where, okay, well, he's merciless. Yeah. And he's kind of tireless. You know, he's going to pursue a quarry. But at the same time, he's generally um, shown as being a peaceful god. There's there's an entirely other god, uh, Kairos? Kairos? Yes. That is responsible for violent death. Yes. So... Those two kinds of things are sort of hard to reconcile if you're just reading words on a page and thinking about it abstractly. Well, well, he's merciless and tireless, but he's also kind of a peaceful, you know, like, oh, wait, hold yeah. on. Yeah, and you see that, you see that in a, uh, now this is in no way, <laughs> i be careful with this because people take things so seriously, but Thanos is a supervillain in the, in the mm. films, but nonetheless, he is a fascinating character because he claims to want to fulfill his role in the universe and to, without distinction, eliminate people beings so that the universe can continue to thrive. So there's that element of having a responsibility. There's that element of being the conveyor, but at the same time, I'm just doing this because nobody else can do it. And yeah, it needs yeah. to be done, and so yeah. And you definitely get the uh, you know the distinct um, impression with Thanos. He is the he is the villain. So there's there's a um, the element of disingenuous or maybe just kind of psychotic um, intent. Yes. And he's he's definitely violent. Yes. But if you were to if you were to separate that, if you say you know okay, if you had Thanos as a character, but he was not meant to be good or evil he just fulfilled a role of bringing death yeah um you could see okay well that kind of makes sense he does he is kind of more you know he's sort of peaceful he's calm he's just like you said he's just trying to do what he's supposed <laughs> to do you know that sort of thing yeah 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 um yeah that was that was the other interesting part that i saw when when i was looking him up was like you said the whole family tree <laughs> and um that definitely has important philosophical implications right for a culture like where yeah. how does the culture um fit death into its you know its thinking and um i think that you look at his siblings and you definitely get a, a pretty clear idea of what the greeks thought about it and the, you know, the greeks were very methodical and so everything has this place and of course if, if, if any culture the greeks would be the ones that have this as I say, organizational chart of, oh, well, here, well, then you go there, and then it, it or uh, not just an organizational chart, but a flow chart. Hmm. Well, if you've done this, then here's where you're going to go, and this is what's going to happen. And yeah, yeah. And not all cultures are like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, so he's a, it's a pretty interesting one, especially, like I said, if you put him in the context of his siblings, yeah. I encourage people to, to look that up because um, hmm. you can see that, you know, the Greeks, you know, there's a lot of negative connotations with death, I think, in their culture, just based off of, okay, the, you know, they had the siblings of aging and, you know, darkness and these other things that, you know, are kind of... Well, there's a whole group of, of, of creatures called the Aranyes, and the Aranyes, uh primarily their function, they're called the dogs of Hades. They're not Cerberus, but they're... Um, and they're sometimes visualized not solely as canines, of course, but... But their focus is parasites, uh, people who've killed their fathers, hmm. um, and people who've broken their oaths. So, okay, so we've got those two. These characters are going after. <laughs> it yeah. gets really complicated, right? Yeah, it's, it's, that's a lot different from um, you know Western Western Christianity, where you have you know you have God and the devil, and okay, you have demons and angels, but really that's like the extent of the <laughs> differentiation. You know, it's not these like specific beings who have specific 
um, sort of roles that they fulfill in the the whole system like that. Mm. Um, all right, so let's look at um, hell in Norse mythology. Ah. <laughs> so the, as much like um, Thanos or you know, Thanatos, uh, hell probably sounds pretty familiar to a lot of people. Yep. Um, so hell, H-E-L, who one must say also appears in, in, in as an iteration in, in Marvel Comics and in the, not an advertisement, it's just that that's probably the most immediately accessible. Uh, in Ragnarok, the last Thor movie that we've seen before all the pandemic, then, then Hell shows up. Hell is the, the, the daughter of Loki, the trickster. Um, Hell is represented very gruesomely, uh, sort of a two-faced... Um, Half of hell is rotting and dead and dark, and the other half is still somewhat alive. Um, and in is the um, the owner and operator of hell. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of interesting things there, right? So yeah. first off, hell's the daughter of Loki, and Loki is sort of the god of mischief, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. What do you? What does that say about Norse feelings on death? Do you think? Do you think that maybe the Norse just aren't as uh, organizational as Greeks? Maybe it's just sort of an afterthought that they did this, or do you think there's a defined purpose? There's behind a defined. That? There's a defined purpose behind this. Uh, I, I think, um, and I, I, I'm too simplistic as always. But I, hell's there are three fields or places uh, where. One goes in the after one. One can go in the afterlife in Norse mythology. I'm really simplistically because it's different for Scandinavia and, and Norwegian. So, but hell, um, her zone is for those who die of natural causes, um, of old age or disease, <clears throat> and typically because of. It's it's organizational, but it's less less structured than the Greeks in the sense of you've got these three possibilities. Um, if you die of natural causes or uh, disease, then then you are going to go to hell's realm. If you die as a as a warrior fighting death, sort of Klingon kind of stuff, then then you go to one of two places, um, and so you either go with Odin to Valhalla. Or you go with the uh, Queen of the Valkyries and um, to Folkvanger, it's called, uh, which is, so Odin and the Queen of the Valkyries divide up uh, half and half, and there's a whole story that goes with that. But essentially, from the studies that have been done of this, it looks like if you were upper crust uh, leader, a commander, you go with Odin. If you were the grunt on the ground, you go to Folkvanger. And you're still celebrated as a hero, and you still get wined and dined and go out and battle and kill yourself and then come back again the next day. <laughs> so so there are three zones, and hell is the one where the, it's the least honorable <laughs> in the sense of having, well, you just shriveled away and died, and that's not something the Norse really... Appreciate it, right? Right. So, I t to me that makes sense that the 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 daughter of the trickster and a giant, um, who's half and half, who's partly li living, partly rotting, um, 
it's, it's sort of an ugly image and a very brutal character. And, you know, so if you're lucky enough to live to an old age, too bad for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, the, you know, the image probably says something as well, right? Now, when so when these people died of old age, did hell kind of fulfill the role that some of these other um, gods do where she did she transport people to death or was there no such deity there was she just the goddess of the underworld um well uh, in that system the valkyries transport the warriors um hell has assistants the names are eluding me at the moment but but who do the mostly do the transporting hmm. yeah the reason i asked is because her image seems to suggest a transition from life to death yes so yes. i didn't know if that was something that played into the the mythology at all um and yeah so she's she has siblings as well that are not um not humanoid characters right <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. And so, so she has these these two siblings, and um, one is one's this, the the snake, right? Yes, the, the, um, Loki did not do good offspring, <laughs> <laughs> and the other is Fenris Wolf, right? This, this monstrous wolf um, who is who's unleashing is part of the end of of, of all things. Um, but that's really indicative of various aspects of Loki's character. The snake is pretty, uh, you know, mm. uh, what we associate with snakes, and and the wolf, which is his his utter capacity to be uh, brutal. At the same time, the the wolf is um, Fenris is probably more um, not empathic. That's not the word. We might have more sympathy for Fenris. I do sometimes in the stories when I think about it, really, because um, Loki is put in the position of having to uh, chain up his son. Um, so actually, Loki is sacrificing his hmm. son for the balancing of the whole system and how it's supposed to go. Hmm. Um, with the snake too, but not in the. Not, I think, as directly. So, yeah. Yeah. So the interesting thing there, right, is so you have the wolf and the snake. Neither one is humanoid, and then they serve a specific kind of role. Um, but then there's Hell, and she's humanoid for the most part. She's actually put in charge of um, a section of the underworld. Right. So she's there's a lot of differentiation between her and then her siblings. Right, and and then remember, there's uh, Freya, mm, yeah, who this gets really messy because it's she wasn't Frigg or Frigga, uh, 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 the wife of Odin, in much of the Norse mythology. But then, as things do, it became conflated, and so she's sometimes associated associated as wife of Odin, and 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 not. But she was the first Valkyrie. Hmm. Uh, the supreme leader of the Valkyries, basically. And that's why Folkvanger is her place to take the folk, the ordinary um, warriors. Um, but she's a really interesting character, too, as, as is Hell, but I, I think even perhaps more so because because there's there's an acknowledgement in the whereas to me the Greeks parcel out this characteristic or that aspect to a particular pe person we uh, being and we talked about this I think some uh, the other talk um, 
And the Norse sort of acknowledges the duality of character. So, so Freya is, is the protector of marriage hmm. and fertility. And many death gods are, interestingly. Uh, but she is not at all opposed to sleeping around. <laughs> but but she guards others' marriages. Right. Uh, you know, so she with a vengeance. Mm. Uh, but for her, nah, those rules don't apply to me. Um, so it's not all pretty, but <laughs> and it's not simplistic. Uh, and she tricks Odin sometimes, and he tricks her sometimes, if, uh, when it's the iteration of husband and wife. But even before it became conflated, uh, she was quite capable of doing uh, complicated things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting. Those those Norse characters are, are more complicated and uh, multifaceted than... than and I think, therefore, more uh, recognizable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so that's... Um, oh, well, the one other thing I wanted to cover was the actual place of of hell, right? Because I, portions of hell have names that, that kind of go along with... Um, There's Hames, H-E-I-M, the home of, or the yeah, field of. Yeah. yeah, and so that's kind of like... Um, Whereas the Greeks created separate gods for things like aging and things like, you know, um, the negative connotations that go along with Behavior. death. Yeah. Um, in the Norse mythology, the actual place of hell has names for things like um, the threshold is, the word for the threshold of hell is like, translates to stumbling block and yeah. different, you know, aging. And so their negative connotations actually take on the place of things in the place of hell. Yes, it's, it's so it's, it's, not, uh, it's spatial in orientation mm -hmm. um, rather than characteristic in orientation. It's, it's class rather than specifics. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a, they, you know, as we, you know, going into it, we weren't sure, okay, well, maybe they're, how does this make sense? It looks like they were just as organized as the Greeks, but the way they conceptualized it was different, you know. Yeah. All right. So let's look at um. Let's look at the Hindu god uh, of death, which is Yama. Yep. Um, the thing that I found interesting about him is that he became the god of death merely by being the first person to die. <laughs> yes. Now, you remember when we talked about uh, the the uh, Gilgamesh, and we were mentioning Gilgamesh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so Udna Pishtim is the person who survives the their version of the Ark, mm. um, and therefore is sitting in a neutral zone, well, really well into the the zone of of, of uh, immortality. He's in, he's immortal, but he has to talk to Gilgamesh about why it's ridiculous to seek immortality. You don't want this. This is not a gift. Well, I think that there's some aspect of that, uh, curiously, in, in Yama, because just because you were the first human, so to speak, and then you, and, and so you died, then you're put in charge of the afterlife. I mean, what, what you, you could ask, because he's raised so many questions, when, there are lots of things about Yama, but why what qualifies you to yeah. be president <laughs> or, <laughs> or whatever, you know, why, why, uh, and, and 
and then there's also that aspect of Yama and Yami, sort of the Adam and Eve characters in that system, but but brother and sister. And so they're completely bonded, but he won't uh, create children with her. And, and, and because, nope, we're not doing this. We got that ancient taboo there. Um, but yeah, he just, there he is. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, as far as, he had kind of a... Um He's a pretty scary character to look at, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, he's he's uh, variously represented as oh, blue or green with um, arm forearms, mm -hmm. sometimes um, swords, staff, um, anything that he can bash you with. He is not a pleasant person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but once you get in, <laughs> then he's going to guard you. Yeah. So. It's a pretty, and again, you know, with, with Hindu, we're getting into a pretty complicated system as well, because oh yeah. um, in Hinduism, in a lot of cases, you know, people don't actually believe in the afterlife in any way, shape or form. So in some places, it's kind of, okay, well, you just go from life into reincarnation. Then in other places, it's like, okay, well, there's sort of a purgatory kind of phase. And then in some other cases, you know, you have, you know, this kind of... Um, sort of an afterlife here. yeah 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 and so so um and in some of these systems and with yama this is the case you 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 once you get in then you drink in this case is a drink uh translated as soma well you know if you think of the word the prefix or the root word soma what words do we think of somnambulism and and sleep studies and mm -hmm. so well soma is is the drink that makes you immortal so you're not immortal yet even though you've gone to their version of the underworld hmm. you have this drink uh to have immortality and yama looks after you once you're there so there, there may be this violent end. There's this, um, uh, which I think is metaphorically, if not literally, suggestive of the difficulty of passage hmm. uh, for for some. And and I think that they're, it's honorable that they do that in a, that story kind of way. That, yeah, this is not pleasant. Yeah, um, the pleasant part comes afterward. But but there's but I I don't I don't know any uh, yet any stories where this happens in in that version of the underworld or that happens in that version of the underworld. Once you're there, it's just sort of you're there. Hmm. Yeah. So you probably can't answer this for me because I'm realizing now that like I didn't actually give you any kind of notes or references going into this episode what we were going to talk about. <laughs> but that's okay. I brought my... Uh, you, you hear these pages flipping because in my studies of mythology over the years, I keep going back to, uh, as a basic source, the, the LaRousse, LaRousse Encyclopedia of Mythology. It's a, a classic source. It's dated in some ex ways, but um, it's so much more um, academic than some of the websites one finds but they're helpful to start mm. the conversation right so i uh, kudos to norm for right i just on the fly off the cuff <laughs> you know figuring out what we're what characters we're talking about and what we're doing um but so you might not be able to answer this um but i'm just sort of curious yeah. like so you die and then you're not immortal until you drink the soma is what what happens if you 
were to say die again in the afterlife before drinking the somas, is there? Well, theoretically, just theoretically, that that's built into the possibility of the story. There is there's one uh, story I won't attempt to pronounce the names because um, I haven't practiced them. But off the top of the one's head, there's a, a, a sort of re- a reversal of some of the Greek stories. Uh, a husband dies, a woman is going goes down to to get him. She has to make a deal with Yama in order to get him. He doesn't want to make that deal, but he makes the deal because the husband hasn't had the soma yet, and mm-hmm. so the the short form is she tricks him. <laughs> He's not happy about it, but. Um, the husband gets to go back. Huh, okay. All right, yeah, I was just curious about... So maybe you kinda... maybe you hold off and say, nope, don't want my soma yet, let's just wait in case somebody comes to get me, but I, I, there's not a precedent for that. That doesn't happen in lots of stories. That's one story. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, and there there are some stories, you know, when, when you're looking up Thanatos or some of these other ones, um, you do see that happen occasionally where they say, listen, these guys are, these guys are relentless. Like, they're gonna... They're going to take you. <laughs> but then there's always a couple stories where they get tricked by somebody. And then... And what do you think that says? You know, I, I'm not sure. Because, you know, I, I'm thinking back to, um, you know, like... Well, you know, I was, I was at church a couple of weeks ago. And, and the pastor said, well, what happened to everybody that, that Jesus healed? You know, mm-hmm. like, well, he raised Lazarus from the death. What happened to Lazarus? I love that he question. Still, <laughs> he still dies, right? At some yeah. point, we're assuming. Yes. You know, we don't see a 2,000-year-old guy walking around out there, right? So, no, that's Methuselah, but that's before. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, he dies. So, we're, we're assuming that these people that, that tricked these gods of the afterlife and brought back their, their loved ones, at some point, they die anyways, right? Yeah. And so, what? That this is a question... And and again, I have to always say this because I don't want people reading this the wrong way. I take all stories, including the Christian stories, fascinating representations of how we are as people and what we say about ourselves. But to me, <clears throat> that's one of the most problematic New Testament stories because, uh, and marvelous in its own way, because here's the Son of God who finds out that his friend, his Dear friend has died. We haven't heard about this dear friend in the other stories. Suddenly, he's got a best friend. It's not one of the disciples. He gets there. His friend has died. He brings him back. Well, that's an act of friendship. That's to to me. There's a there is a little umbilical to to the Gilgamesh story. Uh, it's not the same story, but. You're so not wanting that person to have died that you bring him back knowing that he's going to die again. Now, maybe that's to, to get his affairs in order, to have a life and really think about what death means and get serious. Who knows? I mean, there are all kinds of possibilities. Sort of theologians deal with this on a daily basis. But it's just interesting because the prioritization just yeah. Changes. Yeah. And so some of these ancient mythological stories are a little bit different because in the Greek or in the uh, the Hindu versions here, it's usually, like you said, it's a husband or a wife going into the underworld to yeah. get back a loved one. So what what do you think those stories are saying? Well, I think they're, they're, they're a measure of the in, indomitable optimism that one has about one's own mortality that I can 
if I believe hard enough and want hard enough to bring that person back, I can have them if I'm smart enough hmm. for a while. But there's no nobody thinks about that for a while because then it's still going to happen. Right. So it has to be uh, maybe a combination of fear and optimism. No, not now. This is not the right time. I refuse. <laughs> yeah. And and so there's that sense that human beings can overcome death itself, one way or the other, which does have a huge implication in Christian teaching, but but in, in all these other systems, there's that those elements of I can beat this if I'm smart enough and I love enough, but not everybody, just the, just one or two people. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting, you know, because I, it makes me wonder where those kind of stories came from, right? Because mytholo yeah. mythology as a whole, when, we, when we've been looking through them, yeah. there's a lot of weird things and a lot of different stuff, but all of it seems to have some kind of, um, you know, sort of metaphorical or basis to it mm -hmm. this one seems like one where it would be like nope or, you know you're when you're dead you're dead but they always leave that leave that door open in the one or two stories where you know yeah, comes they back. do and it's and they're different permutations in the greek it's it's well don't don't look back you have to have the belief that you've gone down you've gotten your person she's behind you but if you look back over your shoulder that's it you lost them hmm. so there's that 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 uh, really moralistic never look back always look forward which is what lot's wife right turns yeah, into yeah. being right no, no, don't look back don't you look back we punish you so i i i think that's not exactly the same thing as tricking hmm. death and maybe there's a basis for it in uh uh, maybe there are a few extraordinary instances in the ancient worlds where someone was thought to have died but emerges from a coma. That's what I'm thinking you know? is like, you know, because even, you know, if you think of somebody about to die, who's most likely to save them? Probably their husband or wife. So if somebody's drowning, right? Yeah. And a husband or wife sees them drowning, pulls them out of the water, they can appear to be dead, but maybe the husband or wife happens to accidentally resuscitate them. They think, yeah. oh, well, you, you brought them back from the dead yeah. or, you know, saving them from a fire or, like you said, coming out of a coma, those things. The person most likely to save somebody or be there when they wake up or do those sorts of things is going to be that significant other. So yeah. maybe that does kind of play into the story some. And but, I think it also bring, brings up, the, the, the at the same time, brings up the tragic element of the reminder that it doesn't usually happen that way. And, mm -hmm. and, and I'm treading really lightly with this one because... Um, old friend and many states away from us um his his brother's uh, wife died uh, this past spring going through the ice to rescue one of her dogs in a pond on a college campus uh, that she had attended that her children attended and the husband and the, the family saw it mm. and couldn't do anything about it and and tried but couldn't do anything about it and so i think yeah so i think it's it's bitter sweet it's difficult it's tragic and it's very a sharp difficult story when you start digging into it because for almost everybody that doesn't happen right so why should that happen for you what you know and so it could very easily be turned into a 
oh, well, we're of a certain, we have the ability, you know, we, we, we were stronger than you. All that kind of darkness and, and wrongness, I think the stories could stir up. But, but, for, but you know, I, I think staying more focused on it, it's just, we have this, we think we can do anything if we really put our minds to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that was just kind of an interesting thing to look yeah, into. Yeah. All right, let's look at uh, Anubis, the Egyptian <laughs> god of death. And in, in Egyptian, again, Egyptian mythology is extremely old. And yep. again, like much like the Hindu mythology, the, it gets kind of conflated at times and, and, and mixed up. So Osiris is seen as being the god of death. Isis, who we talked about in the past, has a large role. Yeah. Um, but Anubis has is also kind of looked at as he's a, a conveyor yeah he's a conveyor uh, yeah. uh, uh, you know so again um he's not the governor of mm-hmm. the zone he's one of the conveyors um i know this is particularly interesting uh to me for a, a couple of specific reasons because essentially anubis um when osiris is destroyed by his jealous brother set um Anubis is the one who uh, creates funerary ritual. He's the, uh, Anubis is the one who is uh, attributed uh, to uh, uh, to which is a, to whom is attributed uh, mummification and embalmment. And here's what we do with the dead. Mm. So, unlike some systems which don't really target a single being that says, well, here's why we do our rituals that we do. This one does. Yeah, and, and for that reason, um, I, I think that he's one of the most interesting and unique characters that we look at because everybody is, you know, very familiar with Egyptian mummification or the Book of the Dead and all the rituals you have to go through and stuff. And all that kind of gets traced back to Anubis here where, um, you know, that... The things related to death that set Egyptian culture apart from some of these other cultures mm-hmm. can pretty much be um, related to him, and that's kind of that's kind of neat. Yeah, and then there's Osiris, mm-hmm. and it's, I, I don't know if you're going to Osiris, but we yeah yeah we can talk. We about might it. as well since you're, which who is essentially Osiris is is uh, is uh, lauded for having brought civilization to the rest of the world <laughs> uh meaning agriculture and and various uh, social uh, principles uh, but his brother is jealous when he comes back from saving the world his brother uh, threshes him like unto grain itself which is what Osiris becomes the metaphor for the, the vegetative god and so he's he's shredded sliced diced and and isis his wife wants him back and they have to appeal to a panel of judges (laughs) Uh, one of whom is anubis uh one of whom is horus h-o-r-u-s and um one of whom is oh i should remember i'm looking at my notes um it'll come to me anyway um thoth and and so then they listen to Isis's case and say, yeah, he gets to come back. So they they, they bring him back, but he gets a, he has a choice. They bring him back. They assume he's just going to live an immortal life, governing humans. He said, nope, I'm going away. Hmm. I'm going to go govern the underworld. Hmm. And and so uh, you know, so partly, so what he does is he goes to what we call the Elysian Fields. 
um, he welcomes the souls. And the, the souls he welcomes are all the people who are just. Mm-hmm. So it's just come to this nice place that I have. It's quiet. I don't want any part of the world in where you come down here. We'll take. Yeah, and and so Anubis plays an interesting role there because Egyptian um, conception of the afterlife is a little bit different from other ones. It's not like there's just a place you go, or there's one or two places where you go, and it, or you know, there's a good place and a bad place, this sort of thing. No, in Egyptian culture, you know, Anubis, you know, you have. Spells that you have to know. There's things you have to, you know, you have to solve a whole bunch of puzzles, you know, in order to get to the afterlife. And then when you get there, Anubis is the wearer of hearts, right? Yes. So yes. he, yeah. you get through all of this, and then he's the one who gets to, to weigh your heart and determine, you know, essentially weigh your soul. Mm-hmm. And if your soul is heavier than a feather, feather. Yeah. you get eaten. <laughs> you get eaten, and there there is no more afterlife. You're done. You just cease right. to exist. Right. If your soul is lighter than the feather, then you get to go on. So Egyptian afterlife is weird like that. I think in the ones we've looked at so far, um, there is there's always it seems that there's always an afterlife for everybody. Mm-hmm. And it's, in some cases it's neutral, in some places it's a good or bad place, or it's a class-based place. In Egyptian um, mythology, there's only an afterlife for some people, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what makes it unique. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, man, it's um, each one of these cultures has <laughs> their own kind of unique twist on things, and it makes it really interesting to look at. It does. Um, before we head into the, you know, looking at different um, thoughts on the afterlife, okay. um, the Japanese were our fifth culture that we had been looking at throughout our episodes on yep. um, gods of the dead. Now. In Japanese, you know, a lot of Japanese culture, um, you know, religious beings kind of overlap with some Hindu ones. Yep. Or in some cases, um, you know, Aizanami, who we've already talked about, is seen as the the god of death. So I thought that the one thing that we could look at that was sort of unique, um, and we don't have to spend a whole lot of time on it, but just just to mention would be the the Shinigami. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is not one. Right. It's a whole host of different... Creatures. A lot of times, talked about is um, they're different demons who kind of invite people to death. Yeah. Right? So yep. that's kind yep. of their unique contribution. Um, <laughs> it's it's a pretty dark um, concept. I mean, sometimes they're they're portrayed as helpers, but in a lot of cases, they're monsters or demons or that sort of thing. They're also called soul rippers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so. so and they have a large. Um, a lot of their the main sort of um, aspect of their story is um, suicide, right? Yes, yeah, um, it, which is un, of course in Japanese culture, um, there's honorable and dishonorable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, so I, I I don't know that I, I don't know that it's helpful from my viewpoint to go into the different shades of that, except to say that well, not every culture necessarily deals with that topic right uh the japanese culture does and and it's it's worth knowing that um but i think the very ambiguity of the of the of shinigami is their collective their one collectiveness in in one it's a collective uh uh, sometimes operating with one purpose, sometimes operating in vastly different ways all at the same time. Um, so it's a really complicated notion, unlike having one being 
set up for this, well, you know, the Greeks again, back yeah, to, uh, yeah. or in the Norse, one being for a whole group of kinds of people. This is one set of beings who will go out and pretty much it's not going to be a pleasant experience for anybody, but, um, but maybe different degrees of unpleasantness. Yeah. So it's almost, the Japanese have a, a kind of a more in, individualistic view of that. I yeah. suppose I'd say, you know, because the Greeks have one deity that kind of looks over different types of things and the Norse have one place or one thing that deals with a group of people. It sounds like the Japanese, the Shiganami or, um, you know, are, if, if you are approached by one, it, that thing that is dealing with you is, is sort of individual to you as opposed to somebody else who might be dealing if you and somebody else both commit suicide or die in the same way, it might still be a different Shinigami that, you know, you were dealing with a different issue. Yes. And, and there's something that we have to, uh, we should bring up about, about this too, because unlike everything else we've been talking about, this is a new concept, um, comparatively really new. I mean, it, it, it enters Japanese uh, mythology or folklore, um, in the 18th, the 19th century. Hmm. So we're talking about a concept that may be 250, 300, whatever years old. Right. That's, yeah, <laughs> like, that's, um, so the, so the basis of that, um, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's speculated, of course, that, that it's because of Christian influence. So the, 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 uh, she, um, death and Kami, uh, with her spirits, so death spirits, but that, that, that wasn't there. There were ghosts. There were all kinds of ghost stories in the, in the ancient world, but there wasn't a set of beings attributed to. Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, like I said, that we, we probably don't need to go in, into it any farther than that, but I yeah. think that even that much is enough to probably make people out there think, oh, wow, that sounds kind of interesting, you know, and want to yeah. do some research on their own. Yeah, um, which is really the purpose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we're not covering any of this stuff in the type of depth that you no. you could if you want to. So that's the whole purpose of going over these different ones is just to, to get people thinking, oh, wow, it's kind of neat, and then explore <laughs> the stories on their own. Um, all right, so let's, let's look at um, paradigms of the afterlife, hmm. right? Let's yeah. start with... Um, Probably the one most um, Western cultures are most familiar with is, which is a, a, a place for good and evil, right? You have, is for a heaven or a hell. And it's not just Christian cultures that have good and bad places, but um, why don't we talk about that a little bit? Um, now, in a lot of these places, is, is it based on, it's based on deeds, Good people versus bad people. What criteria do different cultures use to decide who are good and bad people? Well, that's a fascinating question, and 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 the core question, because that's that in, is indicative of the complex uh, approach to humanity that any particular culture has. So, so let's go to um, let's go to the feather guy. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um. So. In uh, it, when Anubis is measuring you, you may have done enormous ills, but if you did one thing that seemingly 
counterbalances all those ills, then your soul might be just slightly up enough to not be taken and gobbled up. So it's not about a successive life of goodness, 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 always goodness. Um, uh, as as and and I'm not sure that it really is in in, in the Christian story either, which is also you know every it's it's, it's because at some point there's a salvational aspect, which is if I've done horrible things in my life, I'm still going to do penance for that. Um, and Catholic system has limbo and and time both, but uh, in which you're you're awaiting. Um, but it's but there's not a, like a string of always good deeds necessary in every single system, and I think the degree to which a system accommodates that there are negative things that human beings do, um, but that that can still sometimes be counterbalanced, is much more human than the idea of always having to do good because if you don't you trip that one time and hmm. yeah so anubis is a little bit different because like you said it's the scales are a good example you're kind of you're doing the weighing right yeah. so you're figuring out well were you mostly good or mostly bad everybody does bad stuff but were you mostly good whereas in christian theology it's more it's a substitution right like okay everybody's bad because you're bad, you can't get to heaven. So Jesus was sent as a substitute. So now you're 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 sort of swapping. So it's almost again like that cheating death sort of story, right? In a, in a sense, know? I think, and I'm, I'm I'm sure people close to you <laughs> say no, no, no. But but really, there is yes. I think you're right. There's a, that that aspect. Now it's it's not a game. And if you just say, oh, I'm saved, in the Christian system, that's not going to do it. it. There has to be some kind of uh, this is where philosophically the uh, language which becomes action, mm. uh, the word act, which actually becomes the speech act, which actually becomes an act itself, uh, which 20th century philosophers or uh, linguists were t- language philosophers were talking about. That's, I think, what, the, the, as an example, the Christian system is about. Um, how Nobody knows if you're soul is saved. You can't save, see the soul. You can't say, all you can do is profess <laughs> quietly or loudly, <laughs> and then live yeah. the principles as best you can, but you're still going to trip. Right. And that leads to some sort of what appears to be conflicting things where it'll say like, well, yeah, good deeds don't get you into heaven, but at the same time, well, if you actually believe, then you'll do good deeds. Right? Yeah, so, it's sort yeah. of, like you are saying, it's, it's yeah. more of an... Uh, it's a visualization process. It's what so many coaches over the years have right, uh, yeah. visualized hitting that basket. You're changing from uh, the inside out. Uh, yeah. So doing these outside things doesn't mean the inside change, but if the inside has changed, you will do these things on the outside, sort of. Um, so uh, what, other, what other kind of... Are there other religions that have a heaven and a hell or a good and a bad place outside of Christianity you can think of off the top well, of Well, I'm thinking ch- Chinese, well, mythology, Chinese. Uh, uh, so we're talking about us, us, uh, not, not um, Buddhism uh, in a pure sense. I'm, I'm thinking about the death, 
the death um, conveyor in the opposite direction, Meng Po, uh, Lady Meng, mm. um, who is this figure who has a house just inside the exit from the underworld. Mm. And you have to drink a broth uh, that she concocts uh, as your soul is going, is leaving. So once you've gone through punishment, and, and there the system is really interesting because you're punished if, you're, if your soul is shredded, immediately upon that punishment, it's put back together again. <laughs> so you can go through it all over again. So it has that element of some Old Testament visions of, of hell. Mm. But once you've done your penance, then you uh, go to Lady Meng on your, it's like the exit interview. <laughs> you, you drink this broth and you forget everything. You forget that you were in hell. You forget what the punishments were. You forget who you were. And then you exit and you are put on the wheel of transmigration. Hmm. It's just a gigantic structure, multicolored lights. It's a picture of the Aurora Borealis and the biggest carousel you've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you are put on that and immediately flung. And, and, and there are one of six places that, that you, you can either become a god if you were, if you've really reached that stage and become a human. You can become an animal, which is not so cool. It means you have much to learn. Or then you can become a demon <laughs> all, all the way down to you're right back where you were before because you hadn't learned anything. But you won't remember that. <laughs> hmm. Um, so I, I, the reason I bring that up is that when you're asking that, I think that's probably the most, um, not the most, but one of the more unusual counters to what we take as the more familiar. Yeah. So in that one, do you have a, that one's less polarized. You know, it's less about there's a good place and a bad place and there's more differentiation. Okay. Well, there's a spectrum, right? You can, yeah. all right, we can end up all the way up here. Or you can end up all the way down here. It's not static. I mean, it's it, it, in, in some ways, there's so many systems are. If you go to hell, you're in hell. You're in hell forever, and there it is. Pretty much, that's how what Christianity teaches. Mm -hmm. So, think about it. And in, 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 we've talked about prison systems before. You know, think about it from the viewpoint: if you're going in, you're never coming out. It doesn't matter. You're just going to be punished. As opposed to you're going in, it's going to be rough. You're going to be punished, but then you're going to be able to forget that, and you're going to give a chance to go back. And maybe this time you'll do better. But you don't get to go back knowing what you did before. Hmm. <laughs> you're going back with a fresh slate, so to speak. And that's the weird part about it, right? Is that you, you know, you would, you think the moral of the story is to kind of learn from your mistakes and become a better person, but your whole memory is wiped, right? So it's like... So if you learn from your mistakes, it has to be something that has nothing to do with memory. Yeah. It's it, really complicated. It, yeah. <laughs> That's pretty wild. All right, let's go, let's go in the opposite direction, which is a non-binary afterlife. So hmm. tell us about some religions where... Is there any of them, actually, where so everybody goes to the same place? In Hindu, well, in Hindu, 
the ultimate goal of of of, of what um, nirvana the place where you don't have to transmigrate anymore that's probably closest to it that i'm aware of so everybody's trying to end up there yeah and can you can you explain what nirvana is well, I'll, I'll, I'll mess it up because, you know, I've, I've, I've studied, I've been in classes and, and, and taught with people, but I, it, you know, it's, it's a place of non, the joy of non-being, a, a, a place of, of tranquility. We're not talking about having angel wings and singing praises to anything, really. It's just a, uh, in my understanding of it, it's a, a place of collective solitude. Um, I think to call it a monastery wouldn't be right because that's just too Western, but a, yeah, a, so, an ocean in which you are. So here's my question, right? Is um, Do you have consciousness in nirvana? Because that, to me, has serious implications for it, right? Because it I feel like in, in the Western conception of death, and as a matter of fact, the reason that a lot of afterlives are created in theologies is this fear of the oblivion. Like, people don't want to think that when they die, it's over, right? Right, right, right. So, my thought, what I'm curious and want to know is, if nirvana is oblivion and if in eastern cultures you know in in, in hinduism mm -hmm. that's the goal is to eventually die and have there be nothing instead of being reincarnated and continuing to go through the process of life because that would be like a completely diametrically opposed sort of view of oblivion you know it it, it, it would and and i'm um i'm cheating troll i'm looking up <laughs> um there's a, a, a good mythological online encyclopedia that I I just want to bring this up because I, I don't want to be misrepresenting and uh, uh, oversimplifying is, is necessary in, in what we do. Yeah. No, I don't want the rock band. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot all about the rock band. Sorry. All right. Um, uh, I think that it's... You see, because the whole thing built into, it's not Hindu, it's Buddhist. The whole thing built into this is um, disattachment, um, enlightenment. Well, if you're enlightened, you're going to be aware. So, um, uh, escape from samsara. Samsara is... Um, um, and and this is Buddhist. I, I was I, I beg pardon. I said Hindu, and I shouldn't have done that. Samsara is um, all the things that trip us up. In my yoga practice, we learn about this all the time. Okay. You get into a bad habit without even realizing you get into a bad habit, and it trips you up from your practice. And you realize, no, I shouldn't be doing this. And so you stop. <laughs> As if it's that simple, but so you stop. And and so um, so Nirvana is is. Uh, they're not going to be, you won't be reborn anymore. Um, and there is an awareness because you see the world as it really is. You recognize the sum total of the entirety of what the universe hmm. is. So in, once, so in that sense, you are gaining 
all knowledge, the things that humans, mm. some humans, we, we try, we try to find things out. We want to know, but you're going to know. Hmm. So that's interesting. So you, there is a, there is a consciousness, there's an awareness, there's an enlightenment, but um, a disattachment because knowing you, you can do anything about it. Right. <laughs> right. So, and then, and the goal is for everybody to end up there. So that's a non-binary one. Um, mm. Now is in Greek in Greek mythology yeah. does everybody end up in the underworld? Where yeah, did- yeah, that's that's and so in that sense it's non-binary too. It's 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 whatever the the word is for twenty five different <laughs> <laughs> levels and sections, you know. And Dante wrote about all the circles of hell, which was a very medieval concept. So it, it, there's the bad, but then there's the worse, and then there's the absolute mm-hmm. bad. So even in hell, there's a class right. classes, right? Um, but yeah, it, yeah, I think you. Could, yeah, you can call that non-binary because everybody goes to the underworld. Hmm. It's pretty much where you go. Uh, that's why in the Iliad and the Odyssey, every, you know, if, if you get an opportunity to go down and visit the shades, as they're called, I mean, they're cold, they're gray, they're hungry, uh, thirsty, but not really the way we would understand it because they can't. And some some are in well, like Tartarus, uh, Tantalus, and so on, and Sisyphus. There and really. Difficult. I almost said Sisyphus was in a rocky situation. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm wondering. Um, But yes, in the broadest sense, it is. You're not going to go to Olympus Mm. unless you happen to be a demigod, the son of a a god, and they really like you and they welcome you in. Mm. So they're, but that's so minuscule in terms of the number of characters that i would say yeah it's not binary so and when you start to look at um the different situations people can find themselves in or like the different levels or these sorts of things what separates it from just regular life then other than the everlasting nature of it is it just because you can't feel anything but you can still are aware Hmm. it's not an it's not a it's not like we were just talking about buddhism it's not an awareness um, that is ultimate knowledge, uh, omnicompetence. It's not that. It's uh, it's you. You miss everything. Hmm. It's not that you're getting uh, flayed and burnt and shredded and all those kind of things. That it's it's that you're you're cold and you're wandering and you're a shade. You're a shadow, hmm. and you know you're a shadow. And and that's not a very pleasant thing. Now, some in some, and this is traditions get mixed up with each other too. And some there's a sort of Elysian, there's an Elysian fields. Oh well, maybe you're lucky and you you get to go and and live on a nice island, but mostly not. Hmm. So So how you live here is really the important thing. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that creates. You know, it does. It creates that that difference between the kind of the Eastern and Western thought about it. You know what what's important. You know, I think regardless, people are going to look at it and say, "Okay, how you live is important." But I think for the Greeks or for the Western culture, you're thinking, "Well, how you live is important because this is this is your life." Like after the, it's not getting any better after this. Whereas in the Eastern version, it's it's almost like. The reason why you live is important is because it's a refining process. So yes. you're trying to get to a higher yeah. state, which are two different conceptions of it. Yeah. 
All right. So, uh, is there anything else we should add about afterlives? Anything that we haven't covered? I'll only mention Epicurus. Um, was an ancient Greek philosopher, and of course was was getting past the idea of the stories as stories, and, and, and was had that marvelous, seemingly simple, which it isn't, but to, to stop worrying about death. He would say, "You die a thousand times before you," mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. Um, if you, every time you think about it, is that you 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 can't know what's going to happen next. You won't be aware of what's going to happen next. Epicurus is the first one on record in the Western world, apparently, to have said that. Uh, You're here, and then you're not. When you're not, you won't know you're not. So he wasn't... He wasn't buying into the shades and the Mm -hmm. underworld kind of stuff. He was buying into that ontological (laughs) um, notion that... And and the epistemological... What can we know? We can't know this. Nobody can know this. We can tell ourselves this. We can convince ourselves this. We can say, yes, we know we're going to heaven or whatever. And I'm not making light of that again, but I, but, but, but philosophically, no, you can't know that. You can hope. <laughs> you can be curious. You can wonder. No, here, then not. So what would you say about, we have, uh, and so I think that, that that view could be seen as pretty, um, depending on the person, right? You can look at that as very scary or kind of um, relieving, right? Yeah. Oh, so when I die, it's done. Like, I don't have to worry about anything else. Uh, that It's over. It's you these, or you could look at it as when I die, I'm done. And like, there, you know, there's nothing left. Like, you know, mm-hmm. so it's kind of the two different views you can use on it. Um, when I die, I don't know what happens next. And so, why should I spend my time worrying about it? Right. So, <laughs> so what do we say about that versus um, Pascal's wager? <laughs> so, on the off chance that there might be a heaven and a hell, live as if there really is one, even if there isn't, because then you're likely to go to heaven. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I think there's a moralism in that that says, you know, you, you ought to be good. <laughs> But really, why would you need to be held over your head, the possibility of punishment? It's this punitive thing that I find an enormous obstacle. But because it's so built into us, we want to punish people who do not believe what we believe. We want to punish people who do not live the way we choose to live. And it's not just about people hurting other people uh, in in ways that we think they should be put in prison. And this is across time and space. We want punishment. There's got to be punishment. Why? Well, any number of explanations. We have no power to stop somebody we think ought to be punished, but we know there's a bigger power than us, and they'll get him eventually. So there's sort of that schadenfreude of, of someday you're going to get yours. Mm. But I find that petty. It's not, it's not really justice. It's a hope for punishment, which I don't think is necessarily the same thing. And I think so many eschatological, death-focused um, systems do that right it's and so you could almost look at pascal's wager um you can look at it in one way if you have if you believe in an afterlife and another way if you don't right mm-hmm. and the the, cur- the curious thing about that is if you believe in an afterlife there's really almost kind of a negative moral aspect to it as opposed to if you don't 
if you believe there's an afterlife, then the reason you're acting good is to save your own neck. Yeah. Whereas if you don't believe there's an afterlife, then you're acting good for the good of society, for the good of your fellow. Precisely. Person. And these kind of conversations came up. I, I, I don't, when, when you were in, in class, I mean, I, I, I know that they, they, they always came up each semester in philosophy classes where some students would on and out declare that if you didn't believe X, Y, or Z, then you were going to be punished. If you didn't believe that, there was no way that you could be a moral person. And that's utter nonsense. Morality is not dependent on having to believe that somebody or something is going to put you through all of this. If it comes from, I will do this because I think that the rightness of it is its own reward, well, then we're not altruistic. We're still looking for reward. But if the rightness of it is right, then one should try. Yeah, and that, you know, there's different, um, that leads into different um, conceptualizations for reasons behind doing good things. You have egoism, which is, okay, I'm doing something good so that I feel good. And then there's collectivism where I'm doing something good for so the good of a group that I belong to. And then there's altruism where I'm doing something good for somebody else, even though it's not good for me. Yeah. And that's an entirely other podcast on its own, it talking about these sorts of things. <laughs> but yeah, so I think, um, you know, there we go. We covered some of the gods of death. We covered some of the conceptions of the afterlife. And um, we'll see if maybe next time we want to cover the soul or maybe we want to move on to something else. But uh, until next time, keep pondering. <laughs>